welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. We're currently teaching through the Gospel of John. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. So we're going to be in John 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, um, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves good wine first, and when the poor, when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Slavery. We, I don't know if you guys noticed, you, could, you couldn't help but notice, but um, the speakers are new speakers. We used to have one speaker that worked, and it was right in the middle. It was this one. And now we have these awesome new speakers, um, and we're kind of gradually acquiring more parts. But it's super exciting, isn't it? It's like when you moved into your first apartment or whatever, and you didn't have furniture. And you like, you know, do you guys remember that? Like some of you still don't. I think Jamal and Bree, they built a coffee table for themselves, and they're slowly building their furniture. Like that's what's going on here. You're seeing it happen. You can, you can say years to come, you can be like, I was there when they had one speaker, and it was fine. And why do we need more speakers now? You know, you could be that person, which would be great. Um, John 2, this is exciting. We're starting uh, to look at the miracles of Jesus. This is the first one. So if you guys have been coming for five weeks and you were like, where are the miracles? You know, here they are. They're coming, you know. And so we're going to look at the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. And we're going to look at it in three parts We're going to look at what the mess was, what the miracle was, and then what the meaning is. So the mess, the miracle, and the meaning. But let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that here you have gathered your children, uh, your sons and your daughters have gathered this morning to hear from you, to hear from their father. And we thank you that you are a good father and you've consistently spoken to us through your word. And so we look forward with great anticipation that you'll do that again this morning, Lord. We know that for us to change, it isn't one amazing Sunday that changes a person, but it's that week in, week out, just the consistent feeding that you do of your people through your word. And so we pray that you would do it again. We pray, Lord, that we would see a picture of you that is so compelling that we would have our misconceptions about you removed and that we would want to, in response, give you our all. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are in John chapter 2, and uh, first we're going to look at the mess, the mess that was here. Uh, You take a look at verse 1, it says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. 
And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So the message is that the wines ran out. And, um, and you might think about that and think, well, this doesn't sound like a great crisis. This doesn't really sound like a need for a miracle. I mean, we're going to see later in the Gospels, we see, you know, kids dying. We see blind people. We see a guy that can get up and walk for decades. And so this doesn't seem like a crisis. But this is a crisis to, to a couple of Galilean teenagers. Most likely this wedding was a, a wedding of two very young people. Typically people got married in their teen years there. And this was a crisis for them. Wedding ceremonies, as many of you know, would last for several days, sometimes up to a week. And it was the groom's responsibility to provide the wine, to have enough wine for the whole ceremony, the whole time, the whole celebration. And so this would have been a huge faux pas. This would have been a really, really big deal, especially when you live in a shame culture like that was, and especially if you live in a small town. In a shame culture, that's even worse. You, you guys know small towns. Small towns are great. People will help you out and everything, but they will never let you forget your mistakes. They will not let your descendants forget your mistakes. You can imagine that people that go to this wedding are talking decades later. Oh, do you remember the Goldstein wedding? They ran out of wine. You know, he didn't turn out to be much of a provider, did he? You know, you can imagine the shame that would happen here. Um, the fact that Mary knows about this probably is because she's either. Uh, a family member or a friend of, of the groom, and maybe she helped with the preparations. That would have been really common. And so she makes this request. She says, they have no wine. Now, it's not clear here that, that she's expecting Jesus to do a miracle. Hey, they have no wine. Could you make some? That, that's probably not what she's asking. We know from this passage, this is his first miracle. So it's not like he's going around doing these things all the time. It's like, hey, do another one of those, you know? No. But this was his most requested miracle later. Okay, I'm sure that whenever he went around, people were like, hey, can you do that wine thing? Um, so uh, it's not clear that, that, that she was looking for a miracle. Um, more likely, as you look through the Gospels, the last time you hear of Joseph, Mary's husband being mentioned, was when he was in the temple when he was 12. Most likely Joseph has passed away by now. And Jesus, being the oldest son and the perfect one, uh, would have been the one that she would rely on for things. And so it was very, very natural for her to rely on Jesus and, and come to him with this. It's, it's no surprise that you go, hey, they have no wine. But what is a surprise is his response. And some of you even cringed when she read it. The response that he has to his mother when she says they have no wine is in verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And guys, this is, you're like, <gasps> you know, and you should. This is not disrespectful. Jesus in no way has sinned here. But it certainly is distancing. Instead of saying, hey, mother, mommy, it's woman, right? And instead of saying, like, hey, what can I do for you? It's, hey, what do, we, what do I have to do with you? Um, there was, this term woman is, is kind of funny in our culture, right? Um, you know, I, I almost expected Bree to read it like woman, you know, like that. Hey, woman. Um, Tasha and I have been dating since, uh, well, we're married now, but uh, we have been dating since we were 15, and just so I'm clear. Um, and there was a time in high school when I thought it was funny to call her woman. So I'd be like, woman, do you remember this? It wasn't funny, okay? It wasn't funny, and I found out it wasn't funny, and I don't do it anymore. Um, and it's not like the NIV says, if you guys, some of you guys have an NIV, it says, dear woman. Okay, so they added that, bless their hearts to make you feel better about this, but it's not a dear woman thing. It's just woman. It's just like it sounds. It's not disrespectful like we might say, but it is distancing. 
And guys, it's unprecedented in Greek, Roman, or Jewish literature of the time to call your mother woman. Okay? There's a commentator that has searched through all those and never found one instance of a dude calling his mother woman. And so you can imagine, as he says this, the whole ancient world gasp. He says woman, and they go, did you hear what he just said? I mean, it's that kind of shocking. What's going on here? Um, it's also very distancing what he says to her. In, in, in the ESV, it says, what does this have to do with me? Which sounds distancing. Literally, it is, what do you and I have in common? Is what it means. What's going on here? It's also surprising that Jesus says this, and then what? And then helps. Like, that's kind of odd too, right? Why would he say, woman, what does that have to do with me? And then he, and then he does it. And I don't, I don't think this is an example of a Jewish mother kind of putting the pressure on her son, and then he's like, okay, mom, this one time. I don't think that's what's happening here. He intends to do this miracle, but before he does it, he says to his mom, woman, what does this have to do with me? What's going on? Jesus is making clear from the outset that he is no longer doing the will of his earthly mother. He's only going to do the will of his heavenly father. And this is a very difficult thing for Mary, but this is an important thing. This is God in the flesh. He's on a mission. And so he is making clear that he is no longer doing the will of his earthly mother. He's going to do the will of his heavenly father. Now, in this particular case, they happen to be the same. The father would have him do this miracle. Mary would have him do this miracle. It's great. Isn't it great, guys, when um, God's will and our will align? Don't you love that? It's the best, isn't it? You know, it's like, it's so convenient, isn't it? When, when my will and God's will align, it's like, oh, this is great. I love you, God. You know, like, you know, but we should never make the mistake of thinking that God is doing our will. Okay? It happens to be that they line up at this moment, and that's really cool and wonderful. But we cannot make the mistake of assuming that God is here to do our will or exists for our bidding. And Jesus wants to make sure that this doesn't happen in this case. Even though Mary is his mother, and he loves his mother, and he respects his mother, and he is the best possible son you could possibly ever have, still, he is God in the flesh, and she has to approach him the same way that anybody would approach him. And I'll show you that. In Luke 11, that Jesus is cruising along, and this lady yells out, you know, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you to Jesus. And what does he say? He says, blessed rather is those who hear the word of God and keep it. What's he doing? He's saying, on a level playing field here. Everybody has to come to Jesus the same way. Matthew 12, um, Jesus' mother and brothers are outside the house, and somebody says, hey, your mother and brothers are out there. And he stretches out his hand, and he says, who are my mother and my brothers? These are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of the Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so we all have to come to Jesus the same way. And this must have been difficult for her, right? Super hard for her. Some of you guys who have adult children um, have gone through this. You know, your kid's not God, obviously. But um, you've gone through this process where you're like, things have changed, you know. You used to have some authority, and you've lost that authority. And so, and so now you, you deal with them as an equal. Um, they respect you, but they don't have to listen to everything that you say. And this must have been hard for, for, for Mary because she had changed Jesus' diapers, right? And to have this distance happen is, is a shock. Um, in Luke 2, um, it was said that a sword would pierce Mary's own heart. This is probably part of that, this, this difficulty of having Jesus be your, your son. And so, but what's really cool, guys, is how Mary responds. Mary has very few lines in the Gospels, and they're all good. 
okay? She is always an amazing example of faith. And look at what she does here. She says to the servants, she says, do whatever he tells you. She shakes off this rebuke. She gets on board. She goes, my son's not here to do my bidding. I'm here to do his. And then she turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Isn't that cool? It's the last thing we hear her say, by the way. If you look through the Gospels, not that she never talks again, but we don't have any other recorded words except for do whatever he tells you. And so that's the mess. Now let's look at the miracle. Take a look at um, the text here. It says, now when there, there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. What Jesus does here is probably going to look very familiar to those of you who know Jesus well. So you ask him for something. You trust him. You obey him. And then what he does in response looks totally counterproductive. Okay, this happens to us all the time, doesn't it? So Jesus goes, okay, I got this. You need wine? Let's take these stone jars that are for Jewish purification. People are like, uh, those really aren't for drinking out of, as you know. These are for washing people. Okay? And then he's like, fill it with water. And they're like, well, we needed wine. So uh, thanks. But anybody else got any ideas? You know? And so that's what he does. He has them fill these things. I think that happens to us a lot of times, right? You pray and you're like, what's he doing here? This isn't what I asked for. right? Look at verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. And didn't know where it came from, though the servants knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This is the first sign that Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee, manifesting his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Somewhere around verses 7 or 8, ordinary water became extraordinary wine. And we had had here um, during our greeting time, and I hope you guys played along, um, you know, asking you guys what your superpower would be. Um, who, who heard the best superpower from somebody here? What was it? The superpower of sleep? Like all the sleep you want? Oh, that's a great one. I didn't ever <laughs> thought of that as a superpower. Anybody else? Any other good ones? You were like, ooh, should have thought of that. Okay, did anybody say winemaking? Okay. <laughs> Because this is an amazing miracle, but it's kind of a strange miracle, isn't it? I mean, it's a strange miracle to have something where you're making wine from water. It's not something we normally would have thought of. And guys, if you look online, and I feel like I need to address this, if you look online, there's a common modern American twist on this miracle, and the twist is that it wasn't wine at all, okay? And if you put Jesus turned water into wine, like on the first page, you'll have more than one article that says, he didn't really make wine. I know it looks like he made wine, but he didn't make wine, he made grape juice. Um, and it's a common thing, like I said, a modern American twist on it, because before, like, the 1800s, the American church didn't really have a big hang-up on this. If you look at down through the centuries, like, communion was done with regular wine. Uh, wine was not the hang-up that it is in the American church now. And I get why people would feel uncomfortable with this. I mean, he makes 150 gallons of <laughs> wine. Like, this is, could be troubling to some, because alcoholism is a big problem. But, guys, it is true that the Greek word here, oinos, can be translated wine or grape juice, but there's a reason why it wasn't translated grape juice here. And the reason is, is because it can't mean that in the context, okay? Um, Go to uh, verse um, 10, and you can see when the master of the feast or the MC of the event, he comes to the groom, and this is what he says to him. 
Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine till now. What he's saying is that hosts would normally put out the best stuff first, and when people have had a bit to drink, they put the cheap stuff out because people didn't notice as much, right? They didn't notice as much after they'd had some wine that they're really not getting the best thing. Great way to stretch the wedding budget, right? You know, no harm done. Everybody's happy, right? Um, and that makes sense if this was wine, okay? This verse makes no sense if it's grape juice. No, let's try it, okay? Everyone serves the good grape juice first. After people have had a lot of grape juice to drink, they put out the poorer grape juice. But you know what? You've kept the best grape juice till now. That doesn't work, guys. It makes no sense. Like, boy, you know, when people have had a lot of grape juice, they can hardly tell that the grape juice isn't as good as the grape juice we had before. You know what I mean? It doesn't work. And so um, I know that this is troubling to some, and it will be less troubling as we go. But it's clear, guys, it was wine. And people say, well, it was diluted. Even if it was diluted, start with like about 12 to 14% alcohol. You dilute it by a third or a quarter. It's still about the strength of most beers, okay? Um, It had an alcohol content still. What do people do when they get lower alcohol content that have trouble with alcohol? They drink more, okay? So it doesn't really take away the problem. But let's back up and look at it this way. Jesus just gave a massive gift to two struggling newlyweds. Let me tell you about this. So these, this was 150 gallons, roughly, somewhere between 120 and 180. Let's say 150 gallons. This is 50 gallons. And I didn't bring this, okay? I'm not that prepared. This was a part of the decorations here. There's a saddle, too. That's not ours. Um, 50 gallons, three of these, full of wine, okay? That's what he creates. Um, if we do the math, it would be about 567 liters And if you were to bottle it by the way we bottle it now, which is about 750 mils per bottle, it would be 757 bottles of wine. That's the gift he brings. Okay? And you're thinking like, wow. Okay? Let's say that it's worth $20 a bottle. Because this isn't two-buck chuck, right? This isn't the cheap stuff. This This is good quality wine. Let's say it's 20 bucks a bottle, which is not too much to pay for good wine. Okay? That means that Jesus just dropped on these people a $15,000 wedding gift. Isn't that amazing? You got to think like, so yeah, like Jesus is the guy to invite to your wedding, right? <laughs> this is the guy that brings the $15,000 gift. And he does bring a bunch of friends and that's just the way he rolls. He has a crew, but he makes up for it, more than makes up for it by the gifts he brings. Um, somebody might, some people might object to this miracle and say, well, it can't be wine because I mean, wine can be misused, right? It's dangerous, and it's true. It can be misused, and the Proverbs warn about that. Verse, in Proverbs 23, it says, listen to this, about the dangers of alcohol. It says, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? I love that one. A friend of mine said, you know, he goes, you know, I don't drink anymore. And I said, yeah, I knew that. And he goes, yeah, you know what's amazing? When I stop drinking, I stop getting beat up. It says, I was like, that's interesting. Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine, those who try mixed wine, do not look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, it goes down smooth. In the end, it bites like a serpent, stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things, you will utter perverse things. We've all seen that before. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies at the top of a mast. You'll say, they struck me, but I did not hurt. They beat me, but I didn't feel it. And when I awake, I'll say, I must have another drink. We've seen that. (laughs) We've seen that. We've either seen that directly in our own lives. We've seen that with people near us. 
Alcohol can be massively misused. It can enslave you. It, it can not only be misused, it can misuse you, right? You think it's going to be something you're going to use for joy, and it ends up taking control. And, and, the, and, the, and the Bible's clear in Ephesians 5 that drunkenness is a sin. It says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. But guys, we wouldn't be biblically accurate if we didn't also say that the Bible says that wine is a good gift from God. Just like Jesus gave this as a gift, as a wedding present, it's a good gift from God. Uh, Psalm 104, I love this. It says, he's speaking to God, and he says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man. So, so drinking alcohol is not a sin. Drunkenness is a sin. Some people shouldn't drink at all, right? But Jesus made real wine here, and there was a real risk of them misusing it. I think that's something that, like, troubles us. He makes real wine at this wedding. There is a real chance people will misuse it. That's their responsibility. He's bringing a gift. And guys, that's nothing new. I mean, how many of us have misused the good gifts God's given us? Okay, that should be universal. We'll just take the down hands as two hands up. Um, so thank you for double voting. Um, we can misuse any gifts. I mean, we think about the gift of sex. We think about the gift of money. We think about gifts of career, of family. We can misuse all these things. And so there was a real risk of misusing it. And really, guys, drinking is a discipleship issue, right? We have been called to be disciples of Jesus. And being a disciple means that we've been called to figure out the way to do all the things he's commanded by the power of the Spirit. Okay, that's what discipleship is. Learning to do all the things that Jesus commanded by the power of the Spirit. And drinking's under that, right? Drinking's something that we should think about as a discipleship issue. And we have to be realistic about our own strengths and weaknesses. Typical standard thing of an alcoholic is, I can handle it, right? Unrealistic. <laughs> Being unrealistic about weaknesses. I mean, some of you guys can have a drink, a glass of wine in the evening, and it helps you meditate on the grace of God. And it helps you meditate on God's goodness. You know, you got to, I've seen your Instagrams, you know. You have a glass of wine and you have Job open. Uh, maybe those aren't a good combo. You have, you have a glass of wine and you have the book of Revelation open. I don't know what you open with, with wine. But, um, but, and I've experienced that too. You have a glass of wine and, and reading the word. It's a great time to just think about the goodness of God, you know. That he would even think of processes to make things like this. And the things that he gives us. But for some of you, that same drink is the first step to stupid town. And you know that. And yet you keep doing it over and over again. And it's like, okay, I did A, and it ended up in B every time. Or 70% of the time. And yet I don't learn. And the Proverbs say, whoever is led astray by wine is not wise. It's a question of wisdom. But guys, what we really need to ask here is, is, is it helping me pursue joy in God or is it getting in the way? And we have to ask that about everything, don't we? We say, is this wine helping me to pursue joy in God, or is it getting in the way? And we got to be realistic. You guys are adults, most of you. And so it's something, if you're not, if you're under 18, or 21, sorry, in our state, 21, you shouldn't be drinking alcohol at all. But this is something we need to ask, right? We need to ask, does this help me? But we also need to ask that about movies, right? What kind of movies we watch? We need to ask that about what kind of music we listen to, what kind of, even what kind of food we eat, Right? Um, Jonathan Edwards, who was a pastor in the 1700s, he actually used to be careful about what kind of food he ate because he wanted to maximize his ability to meditate on the word and find joy in God. Isn't that wild? He kept a journal. A little bit, you know, a little OCD. You don't want to self-diagnose him. But, um, but he kept records of it, you know. And we all know this, you know, Thanksgiving meal is not the best time probably to read afterwards. And so he, he wanted to maximize his joy in God. So he was careful about the things he ate. I'm not 
saying you should do that. We need to think about the sports we're a part of, how much sleep we get, you know, you get the superpower of sleeping. Um, how much sleep we get, is this helping me maximize my joy in God? What does this do to me, you know? The hobbies we do, the relationships we're in, you know? Is this relationship helping me to pursue God or not? The type of books we read. So alcohol is not the only thing we need to think about. Does this help me maximize my joy in God? Is it neutral? I believe some things are neutral. Is it hindering? And then ditch anything that's hindering, guys. God is so good. God is so glorious. God is such a source of true and lasting joy. It'd be worth ditching anything that gets in the way. Okay? So, um, some of you guys might take this and, and, you know, use what I said to justify drinking or your drunkenness. You can use it to justify drinking, but you can't use it to justify your drunkenness. If you do, it's not my fault. Okay? If what you heard just now makes you kind of justify your own drinking by what I said, it's not my fault any more than it would be Jesus' fault if some of these guests get drunk off the wine he made. Okay? We all have responsibility for ourselves. So we've seen the mess. We've seen the miracle. Now let's look at the meaning. Okay, think about this. Okay, question time. Big question. I'm going to rub my hands together in a creepy way. Um, And it makes a sound. Um, Think about this. God becomes a man. He comes into the world to reveal himself and say who he is. And he chooses as his first miracle, and John calls it a sign, to make 150 gallons of amazing wine. What does that say about God's intentions toward you? Think about that. He comes, and his first miracle is wine. And it's a sign, right? It's a sign of his kingdom. What does it say about his intentions toward you? What do you guys think? Joy, right? It's a symbol of joy. It's a symbol of celebration. It's a sign that Jesus has come to rescue your joy. Is that what you thought about God? I mean, some of you guys think that God's like this cosmic killjoy, and he's really just trying to get, like, really hard workers and doesn't really care about your happiness. But this miracle blows that out of the water, right? I mean, it's such, it blows out of the water so much that some of us religious types have a hard time with it. We're like, what's he doing? He should be, you know, organizing a worship service. What's he <laughs> doing making wine, you know? It's a sign that Jesus has come to rescue your joy. Jesus has come to invite you into a feast. Guys, salvation is not just about an assent to facts, not just about believing the right facts, and it's not even just about like signing up for a certain code of conduct. Salvation is about enjoying a feast. And this is thorough throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, a lot. Psalm 16, he's speaking to God, and he says, You have made me know the path of life. In your presence, God, is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You think about God that way? That he is the source point of all joy that will last. He is the source point of all pleasure that will ever last. Um, I love uh, Psalm 34. It says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste what? The Lord. You can taste him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 63 goes further. It says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Listen to this. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And then listen to this. My soul, listen to him. This is, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Smack, smack, right? I mean, it's just like, he's like, mmm. He's like, you're like the most satisfying food I've ever had, better than the most satisfying food I've ever had. He's talking about that way about God. Isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing? 
Guys, anyone can find God useful, right? Especially in a crisis, right? Anybody can find God useful. You know, you see that on a plane. Turbulence. Oh, I believe. You know, like anybody can find God useful, right? But his people find him savory. Get that? Anybody who can find God useful, his people find him savory. Their mouth waters when they think about God. Isn't that wild? Um, God, and the reason is, is that God has created new spiritual taste buds on your soul. You guys are like, that's weird. <laughs> I know. But you know what I'm talking about, don't you? When, you? when you read a certain passage of scripture or you hear some truth about him and you just go, mmm, that's good. Mmm, that's tasty. And you didn't used to do that. You didn't used to do that. But, but it's a sign of life in you that you have these taste buds on your soul. And that's why invitations to salvation in the Old Testament especially sound like invites to a feast. Take a look at uh, Isaiah 55. He says, doesn't it sound like a party invitation? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without price and without money. And then he says, why do you spend your money on things that are not bread? And why do you spend your labor on things that don't satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come. Hear that your soul may live. Isn't that cool? Salvation's a feast. Jesus later, he describes it, the world to come. You know, this world will be made new at the end of time. He'll, he'll make it new. He'll, it actually won't be the end of time, but at the end of our era. He'll make the world new. He'll resurrect our bodies. And he began to talk about that world to come as a wedding feast. And you see this language a lot, a wedding feast where he's the groom and the church, we are his bride as the, as the church. And, and this party will never end, guys. The party of this world is coming to an end. You guys may have noticed they already ran out of wine. Do you guys notice that? This world, I mean, you can feel it now, can't you? People are whispering. They've run out of wine. They have run out of wine. This party's going to end, but guys, the party that he has will never end. The wine will never run out. The joy and celebration in the world to come with Jesus will never end. But there's a problem, right? We think about this party, we think about this groom. The problem is our sin. We have already spent a lot of our lives looking for joy in places other than God, right? So another way of looking at sin, what is sin? Well, one definition could be seeking your ultimate joy in something other than God. And so we've looked for it in what kind of things? We've looked for it in money. We look for it in just material things. We look for it in sexual morality or maybe in feeling superior to other people so we're driven to gossip or being judgmental. Maybe we've actually gone to alcohol or to other substances to find joy. Or maybe it's just in our, you're not that kind. You're like, no, I take joy in my accomplishments and my ambition. C.S. Lewis says that people that do that are like kids that don't understand what real joy is. This is what he said. He said, we're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is being offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on playing with mud pies in a slum because we can't imagine what an offer of a vacation at the beach is like. We're far too easily pleased. Jesus would say, the way you've sought joy, it's child's play. I have true joy. And because of our sin... This groom is a groom we don't deserve, and this feast is a feast we can't enter, right? We're not worthy to enter. We don't have an invite. But, this is the coolest thing, but Jesus has come to lay down his life on the cross for his bride. 
He had his eye on a bride when he came to this world, and he came to lay down his life on the cross to rescue his bride. And that fits with, um, there was this cryptic thing that I didn't mention that he says to his mom. Take a look at verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? And then he said what? My hour has not yet come. Which seems like a total non sequitur. It's like, hey, they don't have wine, and he's like, my hour has not yet come. You know, and they're like, okay, you know, and then he does it, you know. And this is typical of Jesus always seeing the deeper level in everything. People are having kind of their superficial talk, and he's like thinking of something else. What's he thinking of? He's thinking of his own wedding feast. He's thinking of what he needs to do to make us worthy to come to that feast, right? This whole hour has not yet come. This is something that a typical reader would have no idea either what he meant until they read further. This is the beginning of a theme. It's kind of cryptic. As you read further, Jesus says a lot of times, my hour's not yet come, my hour's not yet come. And then right before the cross, he says, my hour's come. Jesus' whole life, guys, was a countdown to the cross. And he knows that if he does this miracle publicly, like makes a big, ba-bum, you know, deal, what's going to happen is that's going to move up the timer. Okay, he's on a countdown to the cross. And just like I was thinking about in a, a movie where they're trying to, like, t- there's a detonator, and they're messing with it, and it hits the wrong wire, and all of a sudden it like drops like 10 minutes off the timer. That's what would happen here if he were to make this public miracle. So what does he do? He does it privately, right? He does it privately. Only Mary and the disciples and, and the servants know. And he does that because he's managing the timing of his own death. He does this all the time. His brothers are like, go up to the feast and show yourself. He's like, my hour hasn't come yet. He's saying, I've got a plan for when I'm going to die, and it's not yet. I'm managing the time of my own death. Imagine what that was like for him. Whole life on death row. You know, whole life managing exactly when that timing would be, and it would be in the right place. Needed to be crucified. Needed to be outside of Jerusalem. Needed to be at a certain time. Needed to be around the time of Passover, right? He's planning it. And so here he is, guys. He's sitting in a wedding feast, right? And everybody's having a good time, and there's the joy of the wedding. He's sitting in the midst of wedding joy, looking forward to his own suffering. And he did that so that when you're sitting in your suffering, you can look forward to wedding joy. And I've seen this work, okay? Um, a lot of you guys know um, that this week my cousin Emily passed away. And uh, she was, uh, had a long battle with cancer. And she was 34, so she was really young. And um, I've had a, it's been amazing to look on Facebook and you can see all the tributes people write. And it's just amazing, you know? And you can say what you want about social media because people are like, oh, Facebook. It's beautiful when this happens because it's like, it's like the longest, you know, tributes to her and things like that. And people say one particular thing about her over and over again. And they say that she was a woman filled with joy, right? And uh, it was super cool. I, on Tuesday, I got to pray with her, which was the day before she died, which I didn't know was going to be the day before she died, but we knew she was close. And she was up on, she was on all these meds and you know, like they do kind of when you're near the end, they give you lots of different things just to keep you comfortable, but she's sleeping, and I was just going to, like, pray over her, right? And I go to pray over her, and I'm like, hey, Emily, I don't think you hear me, but, you know, I'm going to pray over you. And she goes, Eric, you know? I mean, this is a woman that's going to die the next day, and she has this, like, last little perk she'll give me. She was full of joy, guys. Her wine never ran out. I mean, this is a person full of painful tumors, and her wine didn't run out. Her joy never ran out because she knew that, She had this kind of groom, and she was headed to this kind of feast. And she knew that her future was that her body be raised. You know, when young people, when they die or when they get diseases or their bodies break down, the the big thing that I always think about is, like, that this is a huge ripoff, you know? It's a ripoff. 
But the resurrection tells us it's not a ripoff. She's not going to get ripped off. Her body's going to be raised and made new, and we're going to enjoy the world to come with her forever. And if we thought she was joyful before, (laughs) we're going to be amazed at what she'll be like then because he keeps the best wine until later, right? Um, I was really struck by this passage in Amos, Amos 9, this week because it says that when the Messiah comes, he's going to bring the wine and the feasting. And so what Jesus is doing here is to say to the Jews, like, hey, I'm the Messiah. Listen to Amos 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is speaking of that future time that we're going to have. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. And then listen to this. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land I've given them, declares the Lord. She won't lose a thing. And you won't lose a thing either if you will receive this groom, the groom that lays down his life for his bride to give us an eternal feast. Wine will never run out. The wine will never run out. In fact, I know in the world to come, we'll say, you've saved the best wine till now. (laughs) You know, we'll be there millions of years, and we'll say, this is better than before. <laughs> so cool. So good. So good. Um, how do we receive Jesus? There's a great picture in here of how to receive Jesus. And it's this groom that, that, that blew it. Okay, He's the perfect picture of how to receive Jesus. Because the first thing you need to do if you're going to receive Jesus is admit that you're out. Right? So take your pocket, you know, and go, I got nothing. I got nothing to bring. I'm out. That you failed... Um, that you have nothing to offer, that with Jesus it's not, I'm going to bring my best, you bring your best, let's see what we can do. No, it's not that kind of thing. I'm out. I don't have anything to bring. And then the second thing you need to do is what he did. You need to take the credit. Did you guys notice he took the credit? It's beautiful in here. The MC comes and he goes, most people put out the good wine first and then bring out the bad. You've said the best till last. And what does he do? Yes. (laughs) Isn't that great? He takes the credit. That's what salvation's like. And you might be here saying like, well, I would never take credit for another man's work. That's the way the gospel works, though. You have to take credit for someone else's work. Some of you guys might reject it because it's that humbling. It's humbling to say, I got nothing. You're going to pay my way. But he wants to pay your way. I would just say, don't let your pride keep you from this feast. You have failed completely. I have failed completely. We're all invited. It's a good deal. Let Jesus pay the bill. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you that you are better than we thought. You are a God full of joy, full of celebration, and you so desperately want to give that to us today. And I just pray, Lord, that we would receive it, that we receive him, the bridegroom, who's laid down his life for us, Lord. That we, as we sing, would sing as people whose debts have been paid, whose future is solid, and that our best days are yet to come. We thank you for this, Lord. You are a good God. Help us to never lose sight of that. Help us free us from a spirit of grumbling and anxiety and complaining and depression and doubt, and help us to, all, even now, enjoy the music of the feast you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church, Menifee. If you would like to know more about the Menifee campus, visit us online at covgrace.org slash menifee.